Friday. Early morning, while the sun was still sleeping, Jesus was cheated. Arrested for no reason but the treason in men's hearts. And just like that, it starts. It was an unjust Friday. Six trials, nothing sticking. Priests punching, judges kicking, slinging lies at infinity. Bedding down on divinity. Who by grace didn't speak. Obedient. Meek. It was a painful Friday as daylight tumbled in, whips ripped the skin of the one who healed a thousand wounds, the one whose soul was right and true, left shreds for something he did not do. It was an ugly Friday. The clawing crowd was given choice, when given choice, let villain fly in a single voice, and when Jesus' name was lifted high, could find no word but crucify, crucify. It was a bloody Friday, filled with nails and wood, a man who did what only God could, arms open wide, good enough to die for the very people who hung him out and bled him dry. It was a dark Friday, a shout to the sky, a spear in the side, to Mary start to cry, as angry earth trembles and black clouds swell. Quietly, Jesus goes through hell, dying in our place, dying well on Friday, Good Friday, how is it a day of such evil and pain ever got the word good in its name? How does a day full of evil and pain even get the word good in its name. Today is Good Friday, a day where we mark the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus Christ. This is why we blow out the Christ candle. Part of the um, rhythm of our church is every Christmas Eve we gather and we, we light the, the Christ candle every Christmas Eve together to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, God coming to be with us and among us. And now in this moment, we acknowledge this horrific thing that's taken place. This part of the story, which often feels like quite uncomfortable to to come face to face with. Light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. Good evening. If you don't know me, my name's Calvin. I'm the associate pastor here at Chauvignard Church. And um, I think it's really special that we get to be here tonight. Uh, on Good Friday as part of our Easter rhythm this year, as part of our our journey towards Resurrection Sunday. We're doing a series at the moment, if you you aren't aware, we're doing the series called Moments of Colour. And the idea behind Moments of Colour is to look at the, the stories of Jesus in the Gospels and to look at the experiences of Jesus in our everyday lives and look at how these things um, breathe vibrancy uh, and beauty and goodness into our everyday lives. And we've been looking at this thing through the lens of communion. And so even though it's really dark, you, there's a communion table in the middle of the room. We've been using communion as a lens. And communion, communion is fascinating because it's instituted during this Passover meal right before Jesus is arrested. And so we find ourselves at that table this evening, pressing into that story. In many ways, this isn't really the kind of moment of color that we would, we would want to look at. In many ways, it's a moment of negative color, um, a moment of anti-color. 
It's almost like we're experiencing something of God in the negative space, in the, in the doubt, in the fear, in the uncertainty, in the discomfort. Maybe you've never been in a church service like this before. Maybe it feels a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not here to apologize for that. Because it's a part of the story that, that we need to lean into in order for the full, the full wonder of Resurrection Sunday to meet us. I mean, thinking a lot about uh, what it was like for me as a kid, I loved watching movies on repeat, right? Anyone like that? You've got, you've got a favorite movie that you, you don't mind going back to. And there is a sense sometimes that uh, you can take something from the story each and every time, but there's, you, you can never get back that first time you saw a movie, Right? There's something that sort of jumped out from around a corner or something that took you by surprise or a plot twist, you know? You can only see those things once. They can only kind of grab you once. And uh, it's a little bit tricky for us because we live with this story that's been passed down over 2,000 years. And like, we know how the story goes. We know that it's a story brimming with hope and joy and wonder. And so it becomes very easy to just skip skip over the painful part, to just jump past it. And so there's something intentional about Good Friday today in this moment about pausing and coming face to face with that part of the story, about making some sort of an attempt to press into and discover something of what the disciples would have felt, what it would have felt like 2,000 years ago in the wake of that Last Supper. That's what we're leaning into This evening. And this is why we use the term grieve. The disciples experience loss, and in a symbolic way, we step into and make ourselves present to that loss this Good Friday. Now, if you are a little bit unfamiliar about how this story goes, we've spoken a little bit over the past few weeks about this communion meal. But just very briefly, I want to take you through what kind of happens in the wake of that meal. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends, a guy named Judas. Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss, and Jesus is arrested. Jesus is questioned by the high priest, and then he's handed over to Pilate. And there are all of these trials that he goes through. And before the public, he is finally sentenced to death, being found guilty of treason, the worst crime against the state in the Roman Empire. Jesus is mercilessly beaten. I'm not going to subject anyone here to scenes from Passion of the Christ or something like that. It's not not really what we're here to do, but but this this isn't just like a slap on the back of the hand. This is a This is a brutal way for a person to get tortured. Chunks of flesh ripped out of the skin, beaten within an inch of his life, then forced to carry wood up the hill, and then he's hung on a cross. It's a strange thing, the cross. Like it's this unique form of torture. It's it's not meant to just be this straightforward form of execution. It was uh, intentionally devised by the Romans to be the most painful way, a, a torturous way of dying, tortured to death. I mean, it's grim having just been whipped across the back 
You know, you've got this person, arms outstretched, nailed in through his feet and through his hands. And in order to keep breathing, you would have to pull against the nails, pull yourself up, dragging your torn up back up splintered wood to get in that next breath. It's a horrific way to go. It's a criminal's way to go. It's the worst thing a human can possibly concoct and dream up against another human. And so this story plays out where, where this man who is nonviolent through and through, who stops his disciples from fighting with those arresting him, who all the way through sticks by his word and continues to speak with grace and peace and love all the way to the cross, he's subjected to the worst thing that could possibly be done to another human being in that time. The full force of human evil is put upon that man. Humanity in that moment, everything they could possibly put on him, they did. Jesus' body gives out way, way earlier than normal. Um, often this is, a, this is a thing that just lasts hours upon hours upon hours. Jesus just doesn't last as long as anyone else. Um, eventually his body just gives out. And they pierce his side and water and blood spill out, a sign of a broken heart. sign, I think, of like his body being just broken and an immense sadness for what's going on. It's a story that, um, that many of us carry with us. It becomes an important part. And one of the things that, obviously, the thing that makes it so significant is that we know what happens on Sunday. We know that the story doesn't stop, but the strange thing, we often don't talk about it, but death wins on Friday. Death wins on Friday. The hope of the world lost. Everything the disciples had invested in lost in that moment. All of the followers, the thousands of people who had come to know of God's love and began to move in the Jesus way lost in that moment. Death wins. The Roman Empire wins. The evil of humanity wins in that moment. It's a grim thing to face. But tonight I want to look just a little bit at how the disciples were responding in the lead up to this. And I think that there's something in it for us because I think that there is something of an invitation for us to learn, for us to grow, for us to continuously move towards God if we would allow it to. I'm interested in looking tonight um, at the movements that were happening in the lead up to this story. There were three, there were three, three disciples or, or three people that I want to point towards. And there are, it's a, uh, there are three stories of betrayal, abandonment, and denial. So the first is a story of betrayal, um, which is the story of Judas. There we go. Um, in Luke 22, which is, which is the chapter that we've been using over the last few weeks to talk about communion, we see, we see this dialogue that Judas is a part of just before the Passover meal, where he negotiates with these, uh, these people to hand Jesus over, and he agrees to receive money. 
I will take money for the life of someone who has been my friend and my teacher and my leader, someone who I've put my hope in. And then Luke, as he tells this story, he goes straight from there into telling the story of communion. And it's like intentional the way these gospels are written, okay? Because this moment of communion is is incredibly intimate. A moment amongst friends, an ultimate invitation right into the depths of this new thing that God is doing. It's an incredibly intimate moment. And even though we see that Jesus is acutely aware of what is about to take place, he still invites every single person at that table to partake in the meal. And then after this meal takes place, we see Judas go and get get these guys, bring them along, and then he kisses and identifies Jesus. So you have this intimate, beautiful moment of communion, of community, of togetherness, of leaning into the story of God. And it's sandwiched right in between these moments of betrayal from Judas. We see in the gospel stories a betrayal of the thing that God is doing. We also see uh, a story of abandonment. There's this, little, there's this little line that happens uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, in Mark 14, verses 51 to 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth in his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So there's this, there's this guy following after, this young disciple following after Jesus. And <coughs> the guys who have arrested him try and grab him, and he runs away, and he, he loses his clothes, but he just runs away naked. It's like, in the, in the intensity of the moment, it's like, it's like, I have to get away from this thing that's happening. I can't be around this. I can't. There's no movement towards Jesus at all. There is only an abandonment of him in that moment. This moment of running away. This thing is too hard. It's too much. And there's a lot of talk about who this young man is. And some people say it's even the author of Mark himself. But the thing is, is that whenever it talks about a young man, there's also this this thing in Scripture. Young men typically were strong men. It was like possibly he could have done something to try and help Jesus, but it's like his strength meant nothing in that moment. The whole thing just became too much, and he ran away. And this sort of allusion to him being naked, it's like it's a sign of shame. I wasn't able to do anything. I just ran away. The light of the world abandoned. And we see this denial. You know, it's interesting. You've got to feel bad. Peter is this incredible disciple through all of the gospel stories. He's got this incredible desire to know Jesus more and to press more into the things of God. He yearns for those things. And yet every single uh, gospel talks about how Peter denied Jesus. It's like, man, they really rub that in, right? The denial of Jesus. In John 15, we see this incredible story. You know, he's, Peter's actually, he's one of the last couple of disciples really with Jesus. And then he kind of departs off as Jesus is taken into the high priest's court. And he's standing outside warming his hands uh, around this fire. And people are asking him, hey, do you, do you know, uh, aren't you with them? Aren't you one of them? Do you know Jesus? And he says, no, no, not me, not me. Three times, as prophesied, three times he denies Jesus. 
You know what's interesting about this whole thing of uh, betrayal, abandonment, and denial? They represent something of the uh, emotional and relational uh, and spiritual movements that are made away from God when things get difficult, when things get just a little bit too hard. I think it's pretty easy to read a story like that and see how it plays out in our everyday lives. It's pretty easy to look at the things that kind of go on and say, oh man, like, I know in that moment, like, like uh, I would have run away. I know I have run away. And as I look at these stories, I, I've, I've just had these two words resonate over and over again that uh, the, the act of betrayal or abandonment or denial results in a distance and a dissonance in our relationship with God. This is what these uh, disciples are experiencing, some sort of uh, physical or relational distance. So you have um, this young man from the Gospel of Mark. It's like he is just getting as far away from this story as he possibly can. And you know, I've seen people like this, and I've been this person in my life. It's like, man, when things have got tough, it's like I will get as far away as I physically can from the community of Christ, from Christ himself, from, um, from any sort of like accountability. It's like we make that movement. Or you have Judas. It's like he just shuts down that relationship in that moment. And it's like as soon as he chooses to put money of all things front and center, it just creates this emotional and relational distance. And what about this idea um, of dissonance? Um, this, what I'm talking about dissonance, I'm talking about that sense of sort of inner upheaval, um, a sense of doubt, a sense of unknowing. It's a fundamental loss of our identity and our purpose. It's like, I thought I knew who I was. I thought I knew who I was becoming. I thought I knew what I was about. I thought I knew what I was moving towards, but now I'm not so sure. This is what we see in Peter. It's like, man, you know how the story goes? It's like, it's like on the Saturday, Peter's back fishing. Back where he was. It's like there's this, there's this internal dissonance, this sense of not, not, like not, not knowing. I don't, I don't know anymore. I don't know anymore. Man, like we know that feeling and we don't, we don't talk about that feeling well sometimes in church because it's so easy to focus on the, on the good and move towards the good and just talk about the good and like, you know, move towards those things all the time. But man... It's totally normal to experience the dissonance, to have those things kind of uproot inside of us. There's a distance and a dissonance that is created. And you see, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, for these disciples, these followers of Christ, there is no understanding of what's going to come on Sunday. It's a complete loss of hope. It's a complete loss of hope. Everything they had committed themselves to, everything they'd been about, everything they were working towards, this person that they followed into Jerusalem was now gone, hung on a cross, dead, defeated by human evil. It's okay for us to sometimes be in that space. I think we can learn that from this story. And I want to show you something in this story that, that, that maybe, 
maybe you've never seen before, but I want to tell you it's okay because often what happens in that space is we lose our belief. We often lose our belief in God in those moments of distance and dissonance. It's like this faith thing, too hard. This God thing, this Jesus thing, too hard. Put it in the too hard box. Don't want it. Don't need it. Never, never should have gone there. But I want to tell you that, that there is just this, this tiny little glimmer that exists in the distance and the dissonance that we see in this story because when we lose our belief in God or when we lose that faith in ourselves that we're invited to, to live out and be a part of God's story, it's like there is still a sense that God uh, sees something in us and calls us towards something. I want to take you to that story in John 18, verses 15 to 27. <coughs> Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "'You also are not one of this man, uh, also are not one of this man's disciples, are you?' He said, "'I am not.'" Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Going straight into verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anas then uh, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. John is a master storyteller. Because I, I think, I mean, I've read this scripture so many times, and I've never picked up on this before. But he actually cuts. There's this scene where Peter is talking. He paints this picture of this, this conversation that Peter is having with a servant girl outside the gates. And Peter denies in this moment of weakness. And then what does he do? He cuts to this other scene where Jesus is being questioned. Have you, have you guys seen this before? Jesus is being questioned, and then it cuts back to Peter again. Like John is trying to show us something. And so what we see is, is Peter experiencing this moment of weakness. And then it cuts to Jesus. And Jesus is, is stand, uh, standing there being questioned, answering boldly, standing up for his story and for the things that he's doing and, and, and just proclaiming that what he's done is right. And then it cuts back to Peter again, who again has this moment of weakness, this moment of humanity, this moment of distance and dissonance. But man, what Jesus says is so significant for us. 
because the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. And Jesus says, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. There's this tiny little thing that it's like, man, I, and I don't, I don't know how much of, of Jesus 2,000 years ago had some sort of divine, all-knowing knowledge about whether or not Peter was out there denying him or not. I don't know how that would have worked, but it's like, here is Jesus in front of these people saying, man, everything I've said to these, to these guys, they carry the same story. They know, they know what's been said. They know what it's about. They'll carry it. There's this sense that, that Jesus knew that the story was always going to be carried and lived out, that the thing that he was doing was bigger than just his life there. It's like he knew that the story, this, this thing that God was unfolding and unraveling was bigger, was more transcendent. Jesus believed in his disciples that they would proclaim what was true and right and good. He has faith in them. Jesus has faith in them and he has faith in us that we would hear and know and carry and embody the same things that he knew and carried and embodied to live out and proclaim a gospel of truth and redemption and reconciliation. And so even in this moment of distance and dissonance, there is still the belief in those who have heard. This, I think, is why Good Friday is called good because of Christ's great love, his willingness to sacrifice, his held belief that what, he, uh, that what he had taught and embodied was transcendent of the current circumstance. This execution was going to happen. It was always going to happen. It needed to happen in order to show that evil will not prevail the transcendent nature of God's redemptive story. Make no mistake, the events of Good Friday are not good. Horrific, bloody, painful, terrifying, uncomfortable. These events create distance and dissonance. And it's a distance and dissonance that plays out in our lives time and time and time again in all sorts of different ways. These events are not good, but Jesus, Jesus is good. Jesus is good through and through. Jesus is good. This is what his sacrificial love looked like. This is what his redemptive love looked like. This is what his peaceful love looked like. Which is why we can still come to the communion table this evening. We come to the communion table from a, different, from a different place. It's not just about remembering the good things or the, the wonderful moments, those sort of warm fuzzies of our experience as Christians. Rather, the, the coming to the communion table on an evening like tonight is sort of a, a movement that takes place despite the sort of pull that we feel inside to, to resist those, those hard corners or the difficult parts of our lives, those things we aren't willing to go towards or to acknowledge. Let's earnestly and honestly acknowledge the distance and dissonance that exists in our movements away from God. 
Let's be willing to identify what those are. Let's be willing to, to confront them. Let's identify the moments of betrayal, abandonment, and denial. And then let's look upon ourselves with the gracious eyes of Christ. And let us cling to that tiny notion that God still believes in us even when we don't believe in Him. And I think it's from that place that we get to, to sing this evening. And so um, I want to invite you to stand. So, so would you stand with me? And I'm going to invite the, the worship team up. And I want to I invite you to be thoughtful of how you engage with worship tonight. Tonight, it may feel appropriate for you to listen. It may feel appropriate to sing. Do, do join in, like, if that's what you feel. But, but to let this be a moment, of, because it's our sort of natural tendency to want to, to, want to move away, it's like, let's in this moment choose to, to move toward Move toward in the painful and in the uncomfortable and the distant and the dissonant. Let's move toward. And then at the end of worship, I'm going to lead us through communion. And it will be communion that takes place from slightly different, different posture of the heart tonight. And then that's how we'll finish.